It was the Danish 19th century theologian Soren Kierkegaard who once said, life can only be understood backwards, but it must be lived forwards. Or to put it the other way around, life is lived forwards, but understood backwards. You see, life is a lot like rowing a boat. I'm not very good at rowing, not in the classic sense of pulling on two oars out on a lake in an aluminium boat, but for a start, in order to go forwards, you've got to sit and face backwards. I don't like that. I like to be in control. Maybe you do too. Because you can't see where you're going when you're rowing a boat, you don't know what's in front of you, you're always guessing what's over your shoulder, always looking to see what's in front of you. When Corinne and I first started dating, we hired a boat, a rowboat on Lake Parramatta. We thought it'd be romantic for us to recreate the old Cherry Ripe TV commercial, if you know what I'm talking about. Corinne had all the chocolates and the umbrella and the white dress and I rowed the boat out onto the lake. Let's just say that we didn't arrive into the middle of the lake calmly. We argued about how to row a boat properly. Properly has always been important to Corinne. (laughs) Corinne got soaked from the splashing of the oars and we even ran ashore a couple of times. The whole mood was completely ruined. It was a disaster date and no big cherry taste. The date was, would have been ended, uh, would have ended a lot quicker if I could have stopped us from going round and round in circles. (laughs) But apparently the way to row a boat properly isn't to look over your shoulder all the time but to focus on reference points in the past you see you need to line things up on the shoreline and focus on them when you focus on a fixed reference point it helps the boat to go straight life is lived forwards but understood backwards when we look back over our life we gain greater clarity and perspective and focus we comprehend the events of our life within the context of the broader and wider narrative when we step out of the momentary incidents of the day to day and interpret things from the big picture perspective what seemed like another insignificant moment what seemed like more meaningless suffering what seemed like a difficult season or random misfortune begins to make a whole lot more sense to us What once seemed like a minor incursion actually turned out to be a major turning point. It's only over time and upon reflection that these things begin to make sense to us. We mightn't have understood what happened. We may never be able to work out why. But when we look back over these events, we understand their purpose and significance. When we look back from where we've come from, where we've been, we can focus on where we're headed. Now, a lot's already happened in Joseph's life. There's already a lot that doesn't make much sense to us either. And if you were here with us last week in our series called The Left Hand of God, even more confusingly for us, Genesis 39 repeatedly says that God is with Joseph. See those words again, chapter 39, verse 21, they're on the screen behind me. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favour in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him and whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. But when you look over what's actually happened in Joseph's life, you've got to start questioning if God is really with him at all. Although Joseph's life is marked by favouritism, nothing so far has gone favourably for him. Despite being favoured by his father Jacob, Joseph was rejected by his own family, sold into slavery in Egypt. 
despite being favoured by his master Potiphar, Joseph was then fancied by Potiphar's wife. But when Joseph rejects her advances, he's framed and falsely accused of indecency. Twice now, Joseph has been stripped of his robe, losing his dignity, yet still maintaining his integrity. And now Joseph sits in an Egyptian prison cell. And while Joseph's found favour again, this time with the prison guard, it's hard to see, isn't it, how God could be with him. Hard to see where all of this actually might be heading, especially since Joseph just sits there. Chapter 40, verse 1, see it with me, won't you? Sometime after this, the cupbearer of the king of Egypt and his baker committed an offence against the Lord, their king of Egypt. And Pharaoh was angry with his two officers, the, cup, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker, and he put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guard, in prison where Joseph was confined. The captain of the guard appointed Joseph to be with them, and he attended them, and they continued for some time in custody." Although we're told that God is with Joseph, eventually Joseph gets some company. He's joined in prison by Pharaoh's chief cupbearer and by Pharaoh's chief baker. And while we're not told what it is that they did wrong, what it is that they deserved, what it is that they did to deserve this prison sentence, I mean holding a cup, baking a loaf of bread, hard to work out how you could possibly muck that up. But we're not given an, an indication of what they've done wrong, but we are told or given an indication of time that Joseph's already been serving behind bars before they got there. See it with me there, verse 1. We're told, see it there, sometime after this. After this, that is, sometime after being falsely accused by Mrs Potiphar. Sometime after this, he's now receiving two new cellmates. But then again in verse 4, see it with me, we're told again, they continued for some time in custody together. Now, I'm not sure how long some time is, but it would be fair to say that it's some time. And while some time as a measurement is unclear, what is clear is that sometimes gets mentioned twice. Here's my point. God is with Joseph, but for some undeterminable period of time, Joseph just sits inside a prison cell. And that becomes hard for us to reconcile, doesn't it? Especially since Joseph's done nothing wrong. And especially since we like to be in control and know where the boat's going. Our expectation is that if God is with us, then everything in life ought to run smoothly. We think that God's presence with us should guarantee that there'd be no suffering and certainly not unjust suffering in our life. But God's presence isn't a promise of immediate release, friends. And God's promise, presence of promise isn't a promise of even rapid deliverance. It's in these desperate and hopeless moments that God is doing his deepest work within us. When there's no let up or change in our circumstances, it's then that we begin to feel a bit sorry for ourselves. But God's presence requires our trust. Trust that he hasn't forgotten us. Trust that he's still intimately involved in the details of our life. Besides all the messy details that we experience, there is a bigger story in play here, friends. God deeply at work in Joseph's life in order to do a greater work through the life of Joseph. Joseph's dreams got him into this situation and so God's now going to use dreams in order to get him out of it. 
Pharaoh's chief cupbearer and chief baker have prison, have prison dreams of their own that they tr- and they're troubled by them. Jo- Joseph notices their emotions and asks them what's wrong. Problem is, no one can interpret their dreams for them. Having been curious about their emotional well-being, Joseph's now curious about their dreams, which in itself is curious, don't you think? I mean, Joseph could reasonably be self-absorbed at this point. He could have been swallowed up in his own pity party. It would be reasonable for Joseph to become sceptical. I mean, after all, his dreams got him into this mess, and so far the dreams that he's had have amounted to nothing. But Joseph knows the one who interprets dreams. And he trusts that God is still with him. See it there, won't you? Verse 8. Joseph said to them, Do not interpretations belong to God? Please tell them to me. Now friends, you are absolutely dreaming if you think that we're going to go into all the dreamy details about all the dreams that are recorded here in Genesis chapter 40 and 41. But let me at least show you the pattern so that those of us who are curious might dive into the details ourselves a bit later on. First, the dream is recounted by the dreamer, then Joseph offers an interpretation of the dream, then another dream is recounted and Joseph offers another interpretation of the dream. Finally, the interpretation of the dream by Joseph gets played out in real life, in a real world event. But we need to remember that in ancient Egyptian culture, dreams were understood as messages from the gods. They weren't understood Uh, like we understand dreams now, to be the processing of our emotions and our experiences. In fact, these two dreamers in prison with Joseph are processing their emotions as a result of their dreams. They're not having dreams because of their emotions. So Joseph says God is the interpreter of dreams, God revealing what he's about to do, what's about to happen to them. And so in verse 9, the cupbearer's dream is about a fruitful vine and three branches of ripened grapes. He dreams again of holding Pharaoh's cup for him, squeezing the grapes and handing the cup to the king. It's a dream about him getting his old job back, which for many of us might sound more akin to a nightmare. But still in verse 12, Joseph says, this is what's going to happen in three days' time. Only when it does happen, would you please mention me and my situation to Pharaoh? Look there, verse 14. Only remember me when it is well with you and please do me the kindness to mention me to Pharaoh so he may get me out of this house. Given the hopeful outlook now, the dream from the chief cupbearer, the chief baker tells Joseph about his dream as well. Verse 16, three, cup ba- three cake baskets on his head for Pharaoh, only the birds start eating the cakes right out of the basket. Birds, terrifying enough, right? Only Joseph says it's about to get a whole lot worse for you because in three days' time it's you who are going to be fed to the birds. Verse 18. Sure enough, three days later, Pharaoh throws himself a birthday party. The chief cupbearer's head is lifted up with dignity while the chief baker's head is lifted from his shoulders. Everything is as Joseph has said. Verse 21. He restored the chief cupbearer to his position and he placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand, but he hanged the chief baker as Joseph had interpreted to them. Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but, somehow, but, but forgot him. Somehow amidst all the stress and strain of holding a cup, feeling the daily squeeze from squeezing juice, Joseph's simple request to the cupbearer to mention him was forgotten. 
And it'll be another two years now, friends, behind bars for Joseph. Another two years before Joseph gets mentioned to Pharaoh. Two years. It's a little bit more specific than some time, but it's still a long time to suffer unjustly, particularly if God is with us. That is until Pharaoh has a couple of dreams of his own. Dreams also requiring some interpretation. Pharaoh dreams of seven attractive and plump cows eating the reeds on the bank of the Nile River. Then seven ugly and thin cows come up out of the river and eat the seven attractive and plump cows. Pharaoh dreams again, and this time it's about grain, seven plump and good ears of grain all growing out of one stalk. Then seven ears of grain, thin and scorched by the wind, swallow up the plump and the whole grain. Now, dreams about agriculture are always weird, but dreams in ancient Egypt, remember, are divine messages. They reveal what God is about to do. God is revealing now what his plans and purposes are. One of the most important collections of dreams comes from the Egyptian dynasty 19. It's found on the Chester Beatty Papyrus 3. Among the list of various dreams are these words. Listen carefully. If a man sees himself in a dream seeing a large cat, good. It means a large harvest will come. In the Egyptian book of dreams, large cats and large cows symbolise the same thing, that is, a large harvest. Another example says if a man dreams of the Nile River, it symbolises that he's been purified of all evil. Large cows, the Nile River, Pharaoh should be feeling pretty calm and confident. But that is not his emotional state now, is it? Look there, chapter 41, verse 8. In the morning his spirit was troubled and he sent and called for all the magicians of Egypt and all the wise men. Pharaoh told them his dreams, but there was none who could interpret them to Pharaoh. If you've ever read the book of Exodus and the Pope is that we'll do that together next year, it's kind of hard to know, having read this passage and the book of Exodus, what it is that magicians in Egypt actually do. I mean, how do they justify their own existence? Pharaoh is now beside himself, beside himself, and there's no one in Egypt to interpret his dreams for him. But that's when the chief cupbearer remembers his promise and tells Pharaoh about a Hebrew in prison who interprets dreams. Finally, Joseph's dreams of being realised is released and Pharaoh wastes no time in summoning to him. Showered and shaved and now walking like an Egyptian, Pharaoh asks Joseph if he can really interpret dreams. But I want you to listen to Joseph's answer with me. It's in chapter 41, verse 16. It's not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favourable answer. And so Pharaoh recites his dream again to Joseph, but before he interprets the dream for Pharaoh, listen again to what Joseph says there, chapter 41, verse 25. The dreams of Pharaoh are one. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. Not to process our own emotions. Dreams were understood as divine revelation. God's about to do this thing in Egypt. God controls the events of life. God controls everything and everyone. Verse 28. It is as I told Pharaoh, God has shown to Pharaoh what he is about to do. Pharaoh, now that you've dreamed the same thing twice, Joseph says it's not a matter of if it happens, it's simply a matter of when it happens. 
seven good cows, seven ears of grain are the seven years of harvested abundance that are coming in Egypt. There'll be plenty, plenty of everything for everyone. But then seven lean and seven ugly cows and seven ears of grain scorched by the wind are the seven years of famine that will follow the harvest. So severe it will consume everything, including the land. Like a Hebrew or a journalist in an Egyptian prison, the years of abundance will be forgotten. Having interpreted the dreams of Pharaoh, Joseph now steps beyond his brief and begins to act as an advisor. Listen to Joseph's advice to the Egyptian king in chapter, in chapter 41, verse 33. Now therefore, let Joseph, now therefore let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man and set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh proceed to appoint overseers of the land and to take one-fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt during the seven plentiful years and let them gather all the food of the good years that are coming and store them under the authority of Pharaoh for the food in the cities and let them keep it. It's not just a good idea that's pleasing. It's a good and pleasing financial management plan as well. All the grain is being kept under Pharaoh's authority. When it's needed, Pharaoh still remains in control. Pharaoh likes the idea. Joseph isn't just a wise and discerning man. He also now knows how to pitch to his audience. The wise men and the, Egypt and the Egyptian magicians have already proven themselves incompetent and useless. And so the man that Joseph talks about is now him. Jailbird Joe is given the job. Look there, verse 38. Pharaoh said to his servants, Can we find a man like this in whom is the Spirit of God? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and wise as you. A Hebrew orphan, slave and prisoner now has all of Egypt placed under his feet. Joseph rules over Pharaoh's house and he reigns over all of Pharaoh's kingdom. Apart from Pharaoh himself, there is no one greater in all of Egypt than Joseph. Joseph has all, authority of, all the authority of Pharaoh. Nobody does anything in Egypt without Joseph's say-so. He gets to ride around in the second chariot and everyone everywhere now bows their knee before Joseph. Formerly robbed, of his robe by his brothers, then stripped of his cloak again by Potiphar's wife. Now Joseph, see it there, wears garments of Egyptian fine linen, gold chains around his neck and Pharaoh's signet ring. Joseph is even given a new Egyptian name by Pharaoh along with a new Egyptian wife, ironically named Potipharah. They have two sons of their own in Egypt, but they are given Hebrew names, Manasseh and Ephraim. And if all of this is starting to sound a little bit familiar to you, almost too good to be true, almost like a dream come true, see if you can pick up the illusion for yourself. But this isn't just about Joseph's teenage dreams. Look there, verse 49. And Joseph stored up grain in great abundance like the sand of the sea and he ceased until he ceased to measure it, for it could not be measured. Did you hear it? A great, immeasurable abundance, like the sand of the sea. Sound familiar? Genesis chapter 12, verse 1. 
Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you and I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and I will make your name great so that you'll be a blessing and I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonours you I will curse and in you all of the families of the earth shall be blessed. Joseph receives God's promised blessing, God's presence with him, God's spirit now within him. Joseph is already being a blessing to the nations. Joseph now rules over a great nation, but it's not Israel, is it? And although it's now hard to pronounce, Joseph also has a great name in every sense of the word. After three generations and 11 sons, finally we have a promising son of Jacob, one who is fulfilling God's promises to Abraham. Everything is now in place here, isn't it? Well, everything except for the geography, because Joseph isn't in the promised land. Joseph reigns and rules over the land of Egypt, but he's not ruling over Israel. Israel isn't bowing the knee to him. Well, not yet anyway. Friends, when we're stuck in a moment, it can be hard for us to get a fixed reference point. Life can often feel distressing and disorientating. Endless disasters keep us going round and round in circles. And when this goes on and on for some time, we can begin to feel trapped and maybe even forgotten about. It's in these lonely moments of isolation that God does his deepest work within us. God at work doing a deeper work in us so that he might do his deeper work through us. But instead we doubt God's presence with us. We don't trust God in our difficult moments. We want to be in control of the boat. And so it gets harder to see where all this is going. Always looking over our shoulder, always wondering what's happening next, always wondering if we're actually doing it properly. Unsure if the boat we're in is even going to go straight or just straight back into more loneliness and difficulty. Listen, it wasn't in a dream, but in a vision. Not by Joseph, but by the Apostle John. Another forgotten prisoner from another foreign and forgotten empire who spoke again of the hope of God's promises to his people. To the fearful and the hopeless, and the suffering, and the forgotten. John's vision is of what must soon take place. Not a question of if, but now only a matter of when. You see, God has revealed what's about to happen. Revelation chapter 1, verse 7. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. John, the apostle, goes into great detail about his vision of the risen Lord Jesus. And when we look back at the cross, we can see where all of this is now heading. Having been stripped of his robe in death, Jesus is now dressed in a long white robe and a golden sash, his hair white like snow, eyes like fire, feet polished like bronze, his voice sounds like the roar of the ocean and his face shines like the midday sun. A double-edged sword comes from his mouth. The Son of Man holds all of his people in his hands. Listen to John's interpretation. Revelation chapter 1, verse 17. When I saw him... I fell at his feet as though dead. 
But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not. I am the first and the last, and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Here is a king of Israel who rules over Israel and all of God's people. Jesus reigns and rules over all things. Every knee bows before him. So don't be afraid. He's with you. And you can trust him. You can trust him in the work that he's doing in you right now. Even if you don't know where you're going, we know the one who's gone ahead of us. Will you pray with me? Father, it doesn't seem like a dream. Sometimes life can feel like a real nightmare. And we don't know what you're doing and we don't know where we're heading and we don't know why we continue to hit our head against the brick wall. And we don't know why the things that happen happen and we don't understand why they continue to happen and yet we're reminded, we're told in scriptures that you are with us, that your spirit is at work within us. Of course we know that as we look over our life we can see how you've been faithful we can see your kindness, the way that you've shaped and directed us and brought us to this point. And so we ask that in this moment, whatever this moment is, whatever this moment looks like for us in a room filled with people, all in different moments, all with different emotions, all with different experiences, would you help us to know that you are with us in this moment? And that because you are with us, we can trust you for what lies ahead. Would you help us to fix our eyes on the cross as the focal point so that we might understand life backwards and that we might live forwards going in the trust, growing in trust of who you are and what you've done. And so Lord, for any here this morning who find this moment just too difficult, Pray that you'd comfort them. For those of us who fear, who fear and are fearful, we pray that you'd bring peace. And for those who are suffering, whether it be physical or emotionally, would you bring healing? For those who feel hopeless and helpless, Lord Jesus, would you remind us of the promises that you've spoken and help us to trust. And for those amongst us who feel forgotten, would you remind us again that you know us all by name and that you are with us always. Amen.